0: One of my most extreme pieces was when I really pushed my body to the limits because I didn't ever want to die. I'm not interested in dying, but I'm interested in how far you can push the energy of the human body, how far you can go. listening to the latest episode of your third favorite above average but infinitely curious podcast dimed out a show dedicated to exploring both the mysteries and the meaning of life an audio kaleidoscope of misplaced labels performance art and why just why on earth would you do that If you're coming into this episode as a completely blank canvas, and hopefully, ideally, that's exactly what's happening. Ideally, you have little to no idea of who the hell Marina Abramovich is, what it is that she does, and why she is known. I mean, even if you do know who she is, the deeper we go into this episode, the chances are you'll be asking that very question a few times. Why? Why on earth would you do that? What's kind of funny about this episode is that I've had it in my mind to do for the longest time, since season two I've been planning to do an episode on Marina Abramovich, and in particular the Rhythm Series, which is what we're going to be discussing in this week's episode. So I've had this in mind for a while and I've been prepping it and planning it. And then in episode nine, which, by the way, if you haven't checked out episodes nine and ten, I cannot recommend them highly enough. To me personally, they are some of the best stuff that we've put out under the dimed Out umbrella. It's a two part conversation where I speak to Alice, a former member of QAnon, and we kind of get into a whole bunch of interesting topics, how she found herself pulled deeper into the rabbit hole how it is that she actually found QAnon, what life was like, etc. And in in the first part of that conversation, she brings up this short film, which kind of opened her eyes to QAnon. And in that short film, there is, as you might guess, a lot of misinformation, a lot of propaganda, and a lot of misconceptions. And one of them, and the the jumping-off point here, is that she brings up the misconception of Marina Abramovich being a Satanist, how this idea has kind of become rife amongst Very hyper-vigilant conservative people. It's a misconception that's been around for some time, but last year really began to percolate a lot more due to the fact that info was, yeah, that intellectual cesspool. They put out an article, you know, demonstrating and displaying the absolute definitive truth about the fact that Marine is a Satanist and is in a Satanic cult and all that bollocks. I mean, look, the fact that we're talking about Infowars pretty much tells you just exactly how valid and rife with integrity said article slash publication was. Look, I'm not going to get into this any further. I'm not going to spend any time debunking why this misconception is a misconception, why it's all a bunch of bollocks, why it's just, uh, just more more finger-pointing from hypervigilant conservative pitchfork wielders and torchbearers that are just freaking out at the very idea of a sense, a semblance, a reflection of violence. You know you know the type. You you know this story. It's been done to death. The song remains the same. Any piece of art that has anything that's remotely dark or violent or has a semblance or reflection of violence or darkness in it is just pointed at by these hypervigilant conservatives as they draw unfounded, unresearched parallels and correlations between said art piece and hypothetical, violent actions in real life. Yeah, I'm not going to get into that, but I will say this because it does sort of tie into what we're going to be talking about. There are elements in some of Marina's work, and a real emphasis on some because it's not representative of her entire oeuvre, it's not reflective of her entire body of work. But there are some elements, especially in the pieces that we're going to be looking at today, which are divisive. I mean, Marina Abramovic as a person and as an artist has been divisive for years. But these pieces in particular do have divisive qualities to them. Yeah, look, full transparency. There is definitely an air of discomfort to the pieces we're going to be talking about here. There is definitely an edge of purposeful confrontation. And yeah. There is definitely an element of violence to a few of them. These pieces, to various degrees, go to extremes. And honestly, some of them, some of the ideas here that we're going to be looking at, are just pretty much unhinged, you know? Some of these ideas are pretty much batshit insane. So, yeah, you've been warned. Some of them are really out there, to say the least. But despite all of this, I've never once looked at any of these pieces or anything else that Marina's done and thought, you know what, there's there's a real darkness to this, there's a real malevolence to it. I've never once looked at any of her pieces, including these, and thought, yeah, that's some really sinister shit. That's some witchcraft right there. Could be because I have a working brain. Just saying. And on that very salty note, let's get into it. Let's talk about the Rhythm Series from Marina Abramovich. If you are coming into this as a completely blank canvas, you know, here's here's your chance to bail if this doesn't sound like it's going to be for you. But if you're feeling brave, if you're feeling curious, if you want to buy a ticket, then consider it purchased. Strap yourself in, because we are going on a pretty wild and, in my eyes, deeply fascinating journey. Hopefully, you guys feel the same. Alright, so before we dive head first into this weird, wonderful, divisive world of performance art, a quick, and I mean, <laughs> I'm going to try and be quick, explanation of my history with Marina Abramovich. So, Like a lot of people, I became aware of who Marina was and her work through the 2012 documentary Marina Abramovich, the Artist is Present, which was based on her 2010 piece of the same name. Now, if you are coming into this as a complete blank canvas, you don't know who she is, you don't have any example of her work, this is definitely the most prominent, the most prolific, this is the most sort of um, notorious I would say, yeah, I think that's a fair word to use, the most notorious piece she's ever done. So, back in 2010, the Museum of Modern Art, the MoMA, in New York were doing a career retrospective looking at the the body of work that Marina had produced until that point. And to coincide with the idea of looking back, she wanted to do something very present. Pun, I guess. Not intended, but it works. So she devised the piece that the documentary covers, The Artist is Present, which is kind of a literal title, because basically what she was doing is sitting in a chair opposite another empty chair, which members of the public could come and occupy. And they could sit there for minutes, hours, or if they even wanted to, the entire day. They could even come back for multiple visits, just as long as they were prepared to wait in line. There was no talking, there was no physical contact, there was just non-verbal communication, just Marina and whoever was sat opposite her, just looking at each other and into each other, you know, just having that moment. And that alone itself just struck me so deep, just the idea of having that moment. Because we move so fast all the time, we are in such a state of constant motion. I myself am very much guilty of this, and it's something that I'm trying, emphasis on the word trying, to sort of combat. But yeah, just the idea of just having that time and that silence and that moment to just be, and to allow yourself to be completely vulnerable as well was just really striking to me. That and the level of conviction and commitment put into this piece, because this wasn't just a one-off event. This wasn't just happening on one day. Marina sat and did this for like seven to eight hours a day, six days a week for about roughly 90 days. That's how long the piece went on for. So yeah, the level of conviction and the endurance, the physical, the mental, and the emotional endurance in that it just really hit me deep so having seen this having discovered this and seeing marina i was just really fascinated to dig deeper to learn more about the person the mind the soul that would devise this piece in the first place and also the mind the person the soul that could endure this from start to finish. So, my curious mind, it started twitching, and I began to dig into the internet. I started watching interviews. I started watching videos. I got a copy of her memoir, Walk Through Walls, which we're going to be reading some extracts from in this episode, which, by the way, will sound like this. So, yeah, keep an ear out for those. We're going to be using the extracts from the memoir to emphasize certain things and to give you a personal insight from marina's perspective in regards the rhythm pieces that we're going to be discussing speaking of let's get into it i could talk for days about just all the various other fascinating chapters within this woman's life and career but let's get into what it is we are here to talk about and that is the rhythm series this is her first foray into performance art and yeah as i said it is divisive but it is also for at least marina it is very transformative and transcendent We're going to be looking at it chronologically, but the numbers don't line up that way. You see, it's not sequential, it's not like the first piece is Rhythm 1, the following one is Rhythm 2, etc. The numbers in the titles have some correspondence to the actual piece itself. Alright, so let's get into it. We're going to start with Rhythm 10, which took place in 1973, and it took place in Edinburgh, Scotland, over at Melville College, and to explain what Rhythm 10 is and to give you a little bit of insight from Marina's perspective I'm going to be reading from the memoir for this section Rhythm 10 was absolutely crazy it was based on a drinking game played by Russian and Yugoslav peasants you spread your fingers out on a wooden bar or table and stab down a sharp knife fast in the spaces between your fingers every time you miss and you cut yourself you have to take another drink the drunker you get the more likely you are to stab yourself like Russian roulette. It is a game of bravery, and foolishness, and despair, and darkness. The perfect Slavic game. My variation on the game involved not one, but ten knives, and sound, and a new idea. Turning accidents into the plan for a piece of performance art. On the floor of the gymnasium of Melville College, one of the sites of the festival, I unrolled a big sheet of heavy white paper. On this paper, I arranged ten knives of various sizes and two tape recorders. Then, with a big crowd watching, I knelt down on the paper and turned on one of the tape recorders. I had been terrified beforehand, but the second I began, my fear evaporated. The space I occupied was safe. Rat-tat-tat-tat-tat! I stabbed the knife down between the fingers of my left hand as fast as I could. And of course, because I was going so fast, Every once in a while I would miss, just slightly, and nick myself. Each time I cut myself I would groan with pain. The tape recorder would pick it up and I would switch to the next knife. Pretty soon I had gone through all ten knives and the white paper was stained very impressively with my blood. The crowd stared, dead silent, and a very strange feeling came over me. Something I had never dreamed of. It was as if electricity was running through my body and the audience and I had become one. single organism. The sense of danger in the room had united the onlookers and me in that moment, the here, and now, and nowhere else. The moment I had cut myself with the tenth knife, I switched the first tape recorder from record to playback, turned the second machine on, recording, and began all over again with knife number one. Only this time, as the first tape machine played back the sounds of the knife point fudding rhythmically and my groans of pain, I tried quite deliberately, to nick myself in precise unison with my previous accidents. As it turned out, I was good at this. I only missed twice, and the second tape machine was recording both the playback and my next round of the knife game. When I'd gone through the ten knives once more, I rewound the second tape recorder, played the double soundtrack of both performances, then stood up and left. Listening to the wild applause from the audience, I knew i succeeded in creating an unprecedented unity of time present, and time past with random errors. I had experienced absolute freedom. I had felt that my body was without boundaries, limitless, that pain did not matter, that nothing mattered at all, and it intoxicated me. I was drunk from the overwhelming energy that I had received. That was the moment I knew I had found my medium. No painting, no object that I could make could ever give me that kind of feeling, and it was a feeling I knew I would have to seek out again. And again and again, So I don't know about you, but just the the very idea of even carrying out this particular piece of carrying out Rhythm 10 just makes me wince, even just thinking about it of doing that knife thing to begin with, you know the the chances of not just nicking yourself, not just leaving like deep cuts and abrasions, but the chances of actually like slicing a finger off. oh, yeah. Definitely not for me. I can tell you that right now. Marina would go on to repeat this piece a number of times. And yeah, I mean, just once is too many times for me. As crazy as Rhythm 10 is, and yeah, I think we can all agree it is kind of crazy. There are a lot of things about it that just absolutely fascinate me. The first and possibly foremost thing is the idea of transformation. As you heard at the start of that extract from the memoir, Marina herself understands and realises that this is crazy. And understandably, she's kind of rife with fear and apprehension and anxiety. And it's just nervous, you know, as I think anybody that is going to attempt something like this would and probably should be. But in the midst of the performance, when she's in the flow of it, something happens, a switch occurs, and that just disappears completely. And it's not just a temporary change for that moment. This is like a seismic shift in her person. And weirdly enough, there's a strange sense of relatability to that. I mean, Rhythm 10 is obviously a very unique scenario to Marina, but the idea of facing something that comes with so much apprehension, something that just causes an overwhelming swelling of anxiety and fear, something that you're looking at, That's staring back at you but is casting like this colossal shadow over you. That's something that I think at some point most of us, if not all of us, have faced or will face at some point down the line. And it can take so many different forms from, I know, like moving to another country, taking on a new job, doing your driving test, asking somebody out on a date after you've been in a really bad relationship, you know, throwing yourself back out there. It all seems so very daunting and overwhelming. But when we throw ourselves into it, which is the last thing that we do want to do, the last thing we want to do is actually approach this thing that we're kind of really apprehensive about. But when we do, we not only realize that it's nowhere near as big as we had made it, that the shadow that it casts is far smaller than we had perceived it to be, but we also see what it is that we're capable of, what it is that we can do. And I feel like this is a really good example. I mean, it's a bit of an extreme example. But it just shows you by Marina sort of just throwing herself off the cliff ledge. She's not free falling, she's flying. Because now she's discovered that when she gets into the momentum of her performances, something takes over and she kind of transforms and she kicks into a, a sense of reserve and perseverance and endurance that she didn't know she had before. Now, I'm not suggesting by any means that you try and do the. that <laughs> you try and replicate this or you even try. Your hand, no pun intended, at that old uh, Russian drinking game. Just, yeah, you just best off not doing that. But yeah, I think there's something to be taken from this. And it's that if you throw yourself into the thing that you are frightened of the most, you can see just how much you're capable of doing. From an artistic standpoint, one of the things I find really fascinating that I really like about Rhythm 10 is the idea of replication and also using sound and replaying events so having them replayed as you're currently trying to replicate them it's i mean you could read a lot into that i don't know exactly what her intentions were um to a t but you could definitely and i mean this is a thing art in any form any medium any format is subjective right what i pull from that is the idea of trying to replicate the exact same thing as it's playing back is is kind of a to me like a little bit of a meditation on the idea of how we get stuck in cycles and patterns, usually of destructive behaviour, which this kind of is, to say the (laughs) least. All right, so from Rhythm 10 in 1973, we move on to 1974, to Rhythm 5. And this took place, I believe, do not quote me on this for certain, but I believe this took place in the Guggenheim Museum in New York. So, yeah, 1974, Rhythm 5, and once again, I'm going to be reading an extract from the memoir. The five in the title stood for a five-pointed star. For two stars, really. There was the large five-pointed wooden star I planned to build in the courtyard of the SKC, and there were the starfish-like extremities of my body as I would lie inside it. My head, and my outstretched arms and legs. The star was actually a double star of wooden rails, one star inside the other, the outer one some 15 feet from point to point, the inner just slightly larger than my body. In between the two star outlines, I would lay wood shavings soaked in 100 litres of gasoline. Then I would set this highly flammable material ablaze and lie inside the inner star, my arms and legs outspread. Why a star? It was the symbol of communism, the repressive force under which I had grown up, the thing I was trying to escape. But it was so many other things too, a pentagram, an icon worshipped and mystified by ancient religions and cults, a shape possessing enormous symbolic power. I was trying to understand the deeper meaning of these symbols by using them in my work. I set the wood chips ablaze, then I walked around the perimeter of the star a few times. I cut my fingernails and tossed the clippings into the fire. Then I took a pair of scissors to my hair, which was down to my shoulders at the time, and cut it all off. I tossed my hair into the fire too. Then I lay inside the inner star. ...stretching out my arms and legs to conform to its shape. There was dead silence. All you could hear in the courtyard was the crackling of the flames. That was the last thing I remembered. Once the fire touched my leg and I didn't react... ...the audience quickly realised I had lost consciousness. The flames had consumed all the oxygen around my head. Someone picked me up and carried me to safety. But instead of being a fiasco... ...the piece had become a strange kind of hit... It wasn't just my act of bravery and foolishness. The audience had been transfixed by the symbolic spectacle of the blazing star and the woman within. Alright, so, a few things on this particular piece. First, I actually have to put my hand up and admit that I was wrong, because I was pretty sure that when this kind of came up in conversation in episode 9, when Alice, the former member of QAnon, brought Marina up and talked about how she used pentagrams in her work, I'm pretty sure that I said she didn't. And as we've just heard there, although she didn't use it solely, directly as a pentagram, she did use a five-sided star, with the idea being that one of the things it represented was a pentagram. So, yeah, it looks like I was a little bit off the mark on that one. But hey, that's fine. You know, when I'm wrong, I'm wrong. And I'll stick my hand up in the air and take accountability for it. Um, Yeah, look, I can see why this may look a little bit suspect to some people. Because I'll be honest, there is definitely some ritualistic elements to this. And I think that's purposely done. The hair clippings, the nail clippings being tossed into, you know, <laughs> the star that's on fire. These do have ritualistic elements to them. There's no skirting around that, but that's because it's done very clearly, quite purposely. But there is a long jump between using ritualistic elements in a performance art piece to being in a satanic cult and actually doing a conjuring or performing a black magic ritual itself, you know. That's not what this is. It's a little bit of a nutty performance art piece in which she put herself in clear and very present danger, like. The the risk factor on this one is ridiculous. When you're looking at something, a structure of that size that is on fire and you are in there, in the center of it, yeah. Like I said, I don't particularly care for this piece at all. It is without a doubt a spectacle. There is definitely a spectacle about it. And as I said earlier, there is a confrontational, purposeful confrontational element to this. And yeah, that is definitely at play here. I do like the fact that she is bringing something from her past, something from her heritage, her lineage. And, you know, you can also say that about Rhythm 10, you know, bringing the old Russian drinking game and putting a new spin on it. I liked what she did in that instance with Rhythm 10 more than what she did here. But I do appreciate the fact that she's kind of dipping into the culture of her heritage and lineage for her performance pieces. And yeah, there's definitely a sense of symbolism with what she's doing here in Rhythm 5. But um, yeah, just in terms of the risk factor and what the piece actually consists of, this one is, is kind of low down, to say the least, on, on my list of appreciation for, for the Rhythm pieces and just Marina's art pieces in general. But I mean, that's just my opinion. No doubt there are many people that absolutely love Rhythm 5. I don't know, maybe you are one of them. Anyway, let's move on to our next piece which is Rhythm 2 which also took place in 1974, this time at the Gallery of Contemporary Art in Zagreb. What's interesting is this is the first piece that has been influenced by a previous piece. So prompted by the fact that she lost consciousness inside the Burning Star during Rhythm 5, Marina devised this sort of two-part performance piece known as Rhythm 2. The idea is to incorporate both states of consciousness and unconsciousness within a singular performance. So once again, sat there in front of the audience, part one takes place over the course of 50 minutes. And in part one, what she does is she ingests a medicine, which Marina describes as something that is given to patients who suffer from catatonia. And this is to force them to change the position of their bodies. And so the medication that she takes that she ingests, it causes her muscles to contract violently and spasm. And over the course of the fifty minutes she lost complete control over her body whilst being fully aware of what was happening. So I mean that in its own right is kind of terrifying. I mean, to a degree, I mean it has its limitations because you know you've done this purposely. It's not as if this has just happened instantaneously without any prior knowledge and she is wondering what is causing this she knows full well what's causing this because she's created this situation but still regardless to to not have any control over your body and just be fully aware of that and know that you have to endure this for so long that's kind of got to be Uh, Yeah, it's got a really twisty melon, to say the least Even though you are fully conscious of why it's happening To give you a little bit of an insight I have pulled a small extract from the memoir Which you're about to hear Now In a couple of minutes, my body was jerking around involuntarily Almost falling out of my chair I was aware of what was happening to me But there was nothing I could do to stop it All right, so that is part one. That is the conscious state part of this performance. Following that, there was a 10-minute break, and then after that, she took a second medication, which was apparently something that was given to schizophrenic patients with violent behavior disorders to calm them down. So going from one extreme to the other. And once again, I'm going to give you just a little bit of insight from the memoir. This time, I went into a kind of passive trance, sitting there with a big smile on my face. Aware of nothing. This pill took five hours to wear off. So, there is obviously a level of extremity to this piece, to say the least, especially in the second stage. You know, the, I mean, the first stage is kind of extreme to a degree, but it's like 50 minutes. The second stage being five hours, that's, that's taking it to a different level. That elevator's going up a few floors on that one when it comes to extremities. But I actually find this one really, really fascinating to sort of compare and contrast the two different states of consciousness and unconsciousness. And it would have been really interesting to see a live audience reaction to this. I mean, look, I don't know how long I'm going to stay for part two. I don't think I'm going to stick around for the full five hours. You know, um, I'm not the most patient person at the best of time. But to see such an extreme contrast between two very different altered states would be a number of things i'll be honest it is fascinating but it would also kind of be disturbing as well um for different reasons obviously stage one you're getting the more sort of manic jerky actions you're getting that sense of uncontrollable behavior and mannerisms and just bodily movement and presumably if you're close enough you can see In Marina's eyes that she's fully aware of what's happening, but she can't do anything to stop it. And then you flip that on its head in stage two, you've got a complete vacant look in her eyes. Just a big smile, as she says, but presumably very vacant look in her eyes. She's checked out completely and isn't aware of the fact that she's just sat there in this vacuous state. Fascinating to see... The extreme contrast, but also disturbing. And as much as I do find this quite a fascinating piece, there is also a part of me which is questioning the ethics of doing this. There is definitely an element of exploitation in this piece, because even though it is Marina that is using her body as a vessel, as the canvas, as it were, for this particular piece... She is also roping in the audience as passive members of the performance and as sort of vessels of reaction. And, you know, I think you kind of have a good idea of how people are going to react to both stages. Obviously, in stage one, when Marina's uncontrollable jerky movements are kind of just spasming here, there, and everywhere, you're going to get a more sort of defensive, reactionary, sort of visceral reaction. A disturbance, absolutely but you're going to get a reaction. As in stage two, you're going to get a disturbed reaction, but it's going to be probably coming from a place of genuine deep concern, especially the longer that you kind of observe this. So I feel like there is absolutely a sense of fascination behind this piece and the motivation, but I also feel like there is definitely a sense of emotional manipulation going on here, and for that reason... I'm very much in two minds about it. All right, gang, we're going to move on to our penultimate piece, which is Rhythm 4, which took place again in 1974, but this time in the Galleria Diagramma in Milan. I think that's how you say it, but you know me in pronunciations. All right, so for Rhythm 4, in this piece, the premise is this. Marina kneels alone and naked in a room with a high-power industrial fan. And you should know that this performance was recorded with Abramovich alone in this small room, and it was being projected to the audience who were in the next room over. So they're kind of getting a live feed of what's happening next door. So she approaches the fan slowly, attempting to breathe in as much air as possible to push the limits of her lungs. And soon after, you know, understandably consuming that much air straight into her lungs she loses consciousness and once again to give you just a little bit of insight from marina's perspective here is a little extract from the memoir regarding this particular piece i had anticipated this but as with rhythm two the point of the piece had been to show the two different states the consciousness and the unconsciousness the milan gallery staff fearing for my well-being rushed in and rescued me it wasn't needed it wasn't intended but it all became part of the piece So again, there's a definite curiosity in exploring the the contrast between the two different states of consciousness and unconsciousness. I do quite like the core idea behind that and using that as a sort of arena to explore. But again, I have problems with this. In fact, I probably have more problems with Rhythm 4 than I did with Rhythm 2 for a couple of reasons. So at least with Rhythm 2... The medication that she's taking, as I say, she's no doubt researched and she's taking an appropriate dose that isn't going to create any sort of long-lasting effects or damage, just enough to create the effect that she wants for the piece. With this, it's, you, there's no way of really regulating it. I mean, you are taking in a mass amount of air and you can't, Put that into doses. You can't really, as I say, regulate or control that. And because this isn't actually used for a particular condition or specific environment like the drugs used in the previous piece were, you can't really gauge any terms of long-lasting effects from doing this. You know, the risk factor is obviously much bigger. And presumably, because this is her fourth piece now, Marina's kind of transformed into this fearless sort of performer, this fearless artist when she's in the momentum, when she's in the sort of flux, the state of the performance all fears and apprehensions go and she's just there in the moment so she's obviously growing in confidence and is wanting to scale up the risk factor but for me, yeah that that seems a little bit too much (laughs) I mean you may have already said that way back at the start, I don't know but for me this is, yeah you, you kind of You're pushing things maybe a little bit too much. Again, there's also questions of ethics here. There is a real sense of exploitation and emotional manipulation with your audience, even more so considering that you are putting yourself in a completely different environment. You are closing yourself off from the audience, but more to the point, and this is probably the point and the purpose of doing this whole thing. You are putting the audience in a different environment and you are closing them off from you. And now you are making them even more firmly behind like this, this thick wall of voyeurism. Now they can't do anything to help you if something goes wrong. Thankfully, a member of the gallery staff did, but you are putting your audience in, in a really sort of tough position. And again, there is definitely a curiosity and a fascination to see what people's reactions would have been if people were actually getting themselves primed to go and tell a member of staff. if people were were primed and, and ready to find her, or if people were just kind of looking on as if they had just witnessed a car crash. There is, without a doubt, a real fascination, like an anthropological curiosity to that, to see how people would react in that situation. But again, there's a real question of of ethics there and exploitation. Again, with art being the subjective beast that it is, you can, of course, draw your own conclusions as to what that particular piece meant. The, The whole idea of being naked and ingesting so much air, there's definitely something you could take from that. I personally can't really say anything pops to mind. I can't say that I draw anything from a sort of symbolic place or it has any kind of sort of creative imaginative or artistic resonance to me it's not like immediately i see this piece and i think oh well that means that and that's representing that i don't really get that from this i get it as a, a curious piece of uh audience provocation and of endurance but from a sort of symbolic place i don't really get anything from it unlike rhythm 5 In which you can do. I mean that's extreme and it was kind of insane to put yourself in the midst of some burning stars. But yeah you can definitely pull. I think most people can. I certainly can at least. And again it's subjective. I can definitely pull something symbolic from that. But from this piece. um, Yeah really nothing. Alright gang so we are going into the final rhythm piece. Rhythm Zero. And this is by far the most extreme piece out of the five. Which you may be thinking is like, well, Jesus, what's going to happen now? Well, just wait and see. All right, so Rhythm Zero. Again, 1974. It is the last piece. It takes place in the studio Mora in Naples. And uh, yeah, here we go. To test the limits of the relationship between performer and audience, Abramovich developed one of her most challenging and best-known performances. She assigned a passive role to herself with the public being the force that would act on her. Abramovich placed on a table 72 objects that were allowed to be used in any way that the audience chose. A sign informed them that they held no responsibility for any of their actions. Some of the objects gave pleasure, whilst others could be wielded to inflict pain or to harm her. Among the objects were a rose, a feather, honey, a whip, olive oil, scissors, a scalpel, and a gun with a single bullet. For six hours, Marina allowed audience members to manipulate her body and actions without consequences. This tested how vulnerable and aggressive human subjects could be when actions had no social consequences. So, yeah, a six-hour stint in which Marina takes on a completely passive role has a table full of objects. Some of them are very nice, some of them are just downright deadly and could have killed her. And for those six hours, she's at the complete mercy of whoever comes to view the piece. Like I said, absolutely fascinating, intriguing. Like, flipping the tables here, you know, no longer are the audience having their emotions sort of provoked and prodded and pulled out from them, like specific emotions pulled out from them by the performance itself. But now they have free reign to enter the performance, not as passive members, but active members. And whatever emotions they feel in that moment, whatever emotions they've been sort of percolating in the days before, wherever their headspace is at in that moment, wherever their headspace has been, that forms the basis of what happens next over the period of six hours. Which, I mean, six hours doing anything. Six hours doing any kind of performance is a feat of endurance on its own. But six hours with that much liberty in the hands of people you don't know? Oh, my days. Like, that's a level of just trust and letting go that I can't even begin to comprehend. That's... I mean... Is it brave? Is it stupid? Is it a mix of the two? Is it sheer insanity? I I cannot say with this. I think it's maybe a little bit of each. I think there's a little part of each of those columns thrown into the mix here. Yeah, it is without a doubt the most striking and mind-boggling, but just, yeah, deeply, deeply fascinating piece in the whole Rhythm series without question. And if there was any piece in the rhythm series that just demanded some insight from Marina's perspective, it's definitely this one. So yeah, let's dive into it. Let's take another extract from the memoir. And uh, yeah, let's, let's dive inside Marina Abramovich's mind for a minute. For the first three hours, not much happened. The audience was being shy with me. I just stood there staring into the distance, not looking at anything or anybody. Now and then, someone would hand me the rose, or drape the shawl over my shoulders, or kiss me. Then slowly, at first, and then quickly, things began to happen. It was very interesting, for the most part. The women in the gallery would tell the men what to do to me, rather than do it themselves. Although later on, when someone stuck a pin into me, one woman wiped the tears from my eyes. For the most part, these were just normal members of the Italian art establishment and their wives. Ultimately, I think the reason I wasn't raped was that the wives were there. As evening turned into late night, a certain air of sexuality arose in the room. This came not from me, but from the audience. We were in southern Italy, where the Catholic Church was so powerful and there was this strong Madonna slash whore dichotomy and attitude towards women. After three hours, one man cut my shirt apart with the scissors and took it off. People manipulated me into various poses. If they turned my head down, I kept it down. If they turned it up, I kept it that way. I was a puppet, entirely passive. Bare-breasted, I stood there, and someone put the bowler hat on my head. With the lipstick, someone else wrote, I am free, on the mirror, and stuck it in my hand. Someone else took the lipstick and wrote, end, across my forehead. A guy took Polaroids with me and stuck them in my hand like playing cards. Things got more intense. A couple of people picked me up and carried me around. They put me on the table, spread my legs, stuck the knife in the table close to my crotch. Someone stuck pins into me. Someone else slowly poured a glass of water over my head. Someone cut my neck with the knife and sucked the blood. I still have the scar. There was one man, a very small man, who just stood very close to me, breathing heavily. This man scared me. After a while, he put the bullet in the pistol and put the pistol in my right hand. He moved the pistol toward my neck and touched the trigger. There was a murmur in the crowd and someone grabbed him. A scuffle broke out. Some of the audience obviously wanted to protect me. Others wanted the performance to continue. This being Southern Italy, voices were raised, tempers were flared. The little man was hustled out of the gallery and the piece continued. In fact, the audience became more and more active as if in a trance. And then, at 2am, the gallerist came and told me that the six hours were up. I stopped staring and looked directly at the audience. The performance is over, the gallerist said. Thank you. I looked like hell. I was half naked and bleeding. My hair was wet. And a strange thing happened at this moment. The people who were still there suddenly became afraid of me. As I walked towards them, they ran out of the gallery. The gallerist drove me back to my hotel, and I went to my room alone, feeling more alone than I'd felt for a long time. I was exhausted, but my mind wouldn't stop buzzing, replaying scenes from The Wild Evening. The pain that had been absent when I received the pinpricks, and the cut to my neck now throbbed. The fear of that little man wouldn't leave me. Eventually, I fell into a kind of half-sleep. In the morning, I looked in the mirror, and a whole clump of my hair had turned grey. The next day, the gallery received dozens of phone calls from people who had participated in the show. They were terribly sorry. They said they didn't really understand what had happened while they were there. They didn't know what had come over them. What had happened while they were there, quite simply, was performance. And the essence of performance is that the audience and the performer make the piece together. I wanted to test the limits of how far the public would go if I didn't do anything at all. This was a brand new concept to the people who came to Studio Mora that night, and it was perfectly natural that those who attended felt worked up about it, both during the performance and afterwards. So there you go, that is Rhythm Zero, which, outside of the artist is present, is probably her most notable performance piece, and if you have heard of Marina Abramovich, there's a good chance that it's because of this piece. It is one of the most extreme performance pieces that you could conceivably put together because of the amount of free sort of participation that the audience has. And the thing is, I love the idea. I love the concept of allowing the audience to mold and sculpt performance. I like that collaborative aspect of it. I think that really lends itself to create something pretty unique, not just as a singular piece, but any time you were to do that, You would get different results any time you allow an audience to, as I say, help mould and sculpt the performance alongside you. But the level of extremity there and the level of exposure is just crazy. I mean, she could very well have been raped in that situation. As she says, the, the only thing she thinks that was stopping anybody doing it was the fact that their wives were there. She could have... I mean, she was assaulted. You know, let's let's not dance around there. Pinpricks, uh, a knife slash, you know... That is an assault, <laughs> no matter how you dress it up, no matter how much you claim it to be part of a performance. Yes, technically it is, but it's also an assault. But it could have been so much worse. She could have been killed. Like, people had the ability and the tools to kill her. Granted, they would have to face the consequences of it, but the option is there if they want to take it. And that is terrifying. Yeah, I have real split opinions on Rhythm Zero. I love the fact that it does flip things on its head. Instead of manipulating the audience to get certain emotions or in the hope and expectation of obtaining certain emotions based on what it is that you're showing them, I love the fact that you are allowing an audience to use their emotions and their mindset to, as I say, contribute and mould this piece but yeah the, the level of danger here the level of exposure is wow i don't even have words for it to be honest we are going to end this particular section and the episode with one last extract from the memoir which by the way is called walk through walls and i cannot recommend it highly enough human beings are afraid of very simple things we fear suffering, we fear mortality. What I was doing in Rhythm Zero, as in all my other performances, was staging these fears for the audience, using their energy to push my body as far as possible. In the process, I liberated myself from my fears, and as this happened, I became a mirror for the audience. If I could do it, they could do it too. Alright right, gang, so there you go. That is our look at Marina Abramovich and her rhythm pieces from 1973 to 1974. What did you think of those? What did you make of that? Did you love it? Did you hate it? Do you find yourself confused? Do you find yourself conflicted? What is your interpretation? What is your opinion on the things we've discussed? I would love to know, especially if you came into this episode as a blank canvas and all of this has been new to you. Yeah, I'd love to know your thoughts and feelings on these. Get in touch. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Foster. Really, genuinely would love to know what you thought about these. Or likewise, if you are already familiar with, if you're a fan, and you know of something kind of related to this, it doesn't have to necessarily be performance art, but it could be dealing with some of the same concepts, some of the same themes, some of the same ideas. If there's something that you think that I would like, Based off of this, that you think would make for a good episode, then I am all ears for your suggestions and recommendations. Next week's episode is going to be a guest week episode, and our guest next week is Rick from 5011 Media. Now, Rick, kind of like Marina, has lived a hell of a life to say the least, and next week we're going to be having a conversation about just a few aspects of his life. We're going to be looking at his time in the military. His time working as an EMT, the accident which made him have to stop being an EMT, which kind of forced his hand to take early retirement. But the main crux of next week's episode, the main crux of our conversation with Rick is going to revolve around the ketamine infusion therapy he's been receiving to treat his PTSD, what that has done for him, how that's changed his life, what it is in the first place. If you've never heard of it before, then next week we'll clear that up and it will clear up just exactly how effective that form of therapy is, not only in terms of his personal and emotional well-being, but how it has really become this creative catalyst for Rick and how he has really kind of just dived into artwork and how that is opening up doors left, right and centre for him. So yeah, next week is going to be a really interesting conversation. It's going to be a little bit all over the place because there's a lot to cover but it is definitely a conversation you do not want to miss. But that is next week. As for this week, well, we're pretty much done. Pretty much. As usual, I will say the following. If you are new to the show and you haven't done so already, what you want to do with yourself is you want to subscribe to us here on Dime Out. You want to find us, which presumably you've already done on the device that you're listening to this to, and you want to gently tap that subscription button. You want to boop that subscription button. Not only are you helping us out enormously, but you're also going to get next week's episode with Rick and the rest of this season downloaded straight to your device without you even doing anything, which is always nice, right? It's always good to have that little extra digital helping hand. Speaking of helping hands, if you've already done that, if you've already subscribed to the show and you're thinking, Mal, what else can I do to help support the growth and future of Dime Doubt? Well, that is an excellent question, and I wouldn't expect anything less from a sophisticated mind like yours. The thing is, there's a number of ways you can help support Dime Doubt. First and foremost, one of the things outside of subscriptions that help us the most are ratings and reviews via whatever podcast platform you get. If you want to give us just a few moments of your time to tap in a review for us, and maybe even a review. And what we're doing this season, and something that I really like to encourage, is a thing called Haiku Reviews. Yep, the format that I'm looking for for reviews, I mean, you can do it in whatever you want, but it's just a little bit of fun. We're just having a little bit of fun here. Haiku Reviews, the format is traditional Haiku format, that is 575. That's three lines, three line poems with five syllables for the first one, seven syllables for your second line, and then five syllables for your third line. So if you want to be a bit fancy, you want to get those creative juices going, and you want to say something nice about the show, that's how we like to encourage that haiku reviews. Or, again, you know, if you just want to say, it's all right, don't mind it, three stars, I'll take that. Although, to be fair, you could probably put a little bit more effort in and we both know that. If you want to make like sugs and go one step beyond, there is another way you can help us out, and you can check that out in the show notes. If you pull up the show notes on the device that you're listening to or you go over to dimed-out.com, you will see, as I say in the show notes for this episode, a link to our Patreon account, patreon.com forward slash dimed out Just in case you've got a browser ready and raring to go, you can find our single tier, which offers you access to the Dimed Out Discord channel, bonus episodes, extra goodies, lots of stuff. Yeah, so go check that out if you are interested. If you're not, then, you know, it's all right, don't worry. It's perfectly fine. And on that very reasonable and understanding note, that is it for this week. As always, thank you for listening. Look after yourselves, look after each other, and until next time. Keep it dimed out.